reading today from Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through to 17. If you do have a Bible, I'd encourage you to get it out and open it up uh, and be ready to read along. If you don't have one, uh, don't panic too much. Uh, the verses will come up on the screen for you to read along. But I'd always encourage you, if you do have a Bible, then please do uh, take it out and open it. Don't just take my word for it that what I stick on the screen is what it says uh, in the Bible. Open it up and read for yourself. Uh, so we're, we're going to get to it. Now, in the verses we're going to read today, we see Jesus encounter two different people. In fact, two very, very different people. And in both cases, Jesus performs amazing miracles. But there's an awful lot more to these two encounters than just the miracles that we're going to read about. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dig in together from chapter 7, verse 1. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it today, Lord, that we would have our eyes and ears open and hearts ready to receive. Lord, I pray that we would see something more of you, something more of your goodness and your glory and your grace as we open your word today. We say, Holy Spirit, would you take this, these words, and would you cause them to live for us today? Would you take your word and would you apply it into our hearts and lives in such a way as it causes us to love you more, to glorify you more, uh, and to live for you more in the week ahead. We ask it for your glory, Lord. Amen. Good. Well, let's read then from chapter 7, verse 1. This is what we get. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, that's just referring to the teaching that we've looked at over the last two weeks, uh, as Jesus gathered his followers around them, uh, around him and taught them. After he'd finished that, he entered Capernaum. Now, I'm going to pause very quickly just to set the scene. It's not incidental that we find out where Jesus was. Capernaum at this point in Jesus' ministry was like his home from home. It was the place where he had based himself. Uh, and as he traveled into other places, he, he kind of traveled out and back from Capernaum. So this place that Jesus has just come into, having taught his followers, was a place where he was well known. He'd spent a lot of time there. A place where he was well loved. His reputation hadn't just kind of preceded him to some place that he was going to for the first time. This was somewhere where people were familiar with Jesus and what he'd begun to teach and what he'd been doing as he healed the sick and brought freedom to those in captivity. Let's find out what happened in Capernaum. In verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. What's going on here? So there's a centurion, a wealthy Roman army commander. And we know partly that he's wealthy because it says he has a servant. This guy was a powerful man. 
He worked for the Roman occupiers. And he was likely in charge of a group of around 100 soldiers. So he, he was an influential man. He carried responsibility. We also learn in these verses that clearly he was a good master. He, it says he highly valued or he, he loved his servant. He didn't just kind of view them as someone to do his bidding, but he, he cared for them. He wasn't a Jew, and he wasn't a convert to Judaism, but he was kind towards them. We, we read as the elders of the Jews come to Jesus to ask him to come to this man's servant, they, they say to him, don't they? They say, he's worthy to have you do this for him. For what reason? Because he loves our nation. He's, he's been kind towards the Jewish people. And actually, more than just kind, we read that he was incredibly I mean, staggeringly generous towards them. Uh, it, it says here that he, he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, some accounts in history uh, of Roman powers being generous towards other religious groups. Okay, so it wasn't completely uncommon that when the, the Roman armies invaded a place, they would uh, give some money and they would be kind towards the religious groups there because it was better to kind of have them on side uh, than to have them revolt against you. And so they might kind of appease them in some way with some help or some money. There were cynical motives often. It was to, to curry favour, to get them on side with the cause of Rome. But that doesn't actually seem to be what's going on here. This centurion seems to have a genuine love for the Jewish people, a genuine concern. And actually, he's not just kind of given them a few pounds to sweeten them a bit. It's not just a donation. Like he's paid for the whole thing, their synagogue, to be built. That would have been incredibly costly. That's above and beyond. The picture that we have of this centurion is that he is he's a good guy. He's loving. He's kind towards those around him, and he's incredibly generous. The Jewish elders who come to Jesus, they really rate this centurion. I mean, you hear in the way they, they talk about him. It's like, he's worthy of you doing it. Like, he's done this, and he's done that, and he's the other. They really talk him up to Jesus. And they were right about his love and about his generosity, but they made a bit of a mistake in there too because they thought that his love and his generosity made him worthy of Jesus doing something for him. That through his good works, he had somehow earned the favor of God. Because of his generosity towards the Jews, he had made himself worthy. He, he was a deserving recipient of God's grace. He had earned it. And so they came to Jesus and they presented it this way, in these terms. And, and that's because that's how many of the Jews thought. It's how the teachers of the law taught the Pharisees that we read so much about. They were busy trying to justify themselves before God by their actions, to earn God's favor, to make themselves worthy recipients. And I'm sure maybe you've even heard people pray or talk like this today. You know, been in prayer meetings where people pray things like, oh God, please 
Would you do it for them? Like, they're, they're such a nice person. They're so generous. Would you do it for them? Like, they, they really deserve it. They're so selfless. Like, they're always giving out to others. And it's almost like we're trying to kind of twist God's arm to do something. But they're such a good person, God. How could you not do a nice thing for this good person? And this is kind of the line that the Jews are taking here with Jesus. But that's not actually how God deals with us. He doesn't deal with us based on our worthiness or our performance, but actually on his unmerited kindness. Because each of us has fallen so far short that that we could not possibly earn God's favor. It doesn't matter how many people you help or how much you give or how many synagogues you pay to build. That isn't going to earn God's favor. It couldn't be enough because One ounce of sin separates you from a holy God. But yet through Jesus, through Jesus, God freely gives his favor. Anyway, even though their line of reasoning was thoroughly flawed, Jesus went with them. And so we read on from verse 6. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Okay, I love this bit. So having had a little bit more time to think, and maybe not knowing what the Jewish elders were going to say, the centurion sends out some more people. So he's already sent out these Jewish elders who've come and kind of pleaded his case. And now he sends out some more friends. Now, we don't know exactly why. Now, perhaps it was because he thought, on reflection, maybe Jesus wouldn't come inside his house because actually a devout Jew, particularly a teacher like Jesus, wouldn't go into a Gentile's house. And that was commonplace in those times, that they, they just wouldn't do that because it would make them unclean in some way. But you know, this centurion has heard about Jesus. That's what we read right at the start. And if he's heard anything about Jesus, I'd imagine living in Capernaum, where Jesus is well known, he will have heard that Jesus isn't your average religious teacher. He will likely have heard that Jesus does things like heal on the Sabbath, that Jesus does things like feast with tax collectors and sinners in their homes. So I think it's unlikely that the reason this man sent out a further delegation to stop Jesus from coming to his house was out of any kind of sensitivity or or thinking, oh, Jesus would be offended or he wouldn't come in because I'm a Gentile. Rather, the man knows that there's something special about Jesus. And a bit like Peter in chapter 4 on the fishing boat who, whose eyes were opened and he saw Jesus' power, Jesus' holiness. And in front of that, faced with that, Peter fell to his knees. You remember reading those verses a few weeks ago? And re- as God's glory was revealed to him in Jesus, he fell down to his knees and said, like, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He recognized that he, he wasn't worthy to be in his presence. 
this man knew that Jesus was holy and that he wasn't. And the prospect of Jesus coming into his house, he thought, I, I, I just, I don't deserve that. I, I'm not, you shouldn't come here. I'm not worthy to have you in my home. And so rather than asking Jesus to come to him, or even himself going to Jesus to be in his presence, he sends another group. It's unlikely he knew what the Jewish elders had said about him, but what is clear is that this man has a much more sober assessment of himself than they did. See, they came to Jesus proclaiming the centurion's worthiness for Jesus' kindness. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. You see, once we see ourselves as we really are, not just our actions, but our thoughts and our desires, then like the centurion, compared to the holiness of God, we too say, we're not worthy. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. Instead of being conceited or puffed up with self-righteousness, the centurion recognizes his condition before a holy God even knowing that he's not worthy he knows something else doesn't he which is really important and that's that he knows that Jesus is good that Jesus is gracious that Jesus is kind that Jesus is also powerful and can do something about his condition his plea to Jesus wasn't based on his merit but on Jesus' mercy. He recognized he wasn't worthy, but even still, he said, but please, would you do it? Say the word, and my servant will be healed. He asked Jesus to heal, and he's in no doubt that Jesus could do it, just by saying the word. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? That this man grasps this about Jesus. And he reasons it through like this. If we read from verse 8, he says, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. There's, there's a brilliant kind of holy logic to the way this centurion thinks and reasons. See, he, he understands that he has very limited human authority. And that when he commands those under his authority, they respond in obedience. So he says, like, I, I say to the soldiers, go, and guess what? They go because I'm in charge. And I say, come, and they come because I'm in charge. He understands that. And he understands that unlike his very limited human authority, Jesus has ultimate authority, true authority, spiritual authority, the kind of authority that says to sickness rather than soldiers, go, and it goes. The kind of authority that says to storms, be still, and it happens. The kind of authority that raises the dead. He knew that Jesus could do it because Jesus had authority. There was no doubt in his mind. He wasn't trying to convince Jesus based on his own merit or worthiness, but he was leaning in to Jesus' kindness, leaning in 
to Jesus' goodness and generosity. And how does Jesus respond? Let's read together from verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This centurion had faith, great faith, faith that made Jesus go, guys, <laughs> like in all of Israel, amongst all of God's people who I've encountered, I've not found faith like this. This is amazing. I've not found faith like this among any of the people who are supposed to have faith. And yet this, a, a Gentile centurion, has amazing faith. Well, what is this faith that Jesus commends him for? I want to define it this way. Faith, in this man's case, and I think generally, biblically speaking, faith is the ability to see things as they really are. It's not a suspension of reality. It's an awakening to reality. Faith is the ability to see things from God's perspective. It's not some vague hope or wishful thinking or pipe dream. It's, it's actually having a correct perspective. It's seeing clearly. And this centurion saw things as they really were, rather than how he wanted them to be. This centurion uh, wasn't having some kind of flight of fancy driven along by an overinflated sense of self-worth or, or any other such thing. No, he saw clearly what was going on. He knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus could do. He saw clearly. And he also knew who he was. He knew that his unworthiness wouldn't determine Jesus' kindness because his hope didn't rest on his credentials but on Christ's kindness and Christ's authority. By faith, this centurion saw that Jesus had the authority and the capacity to heal. Now, there are loads of things that hinder our faith that stop us from seeing with that kind of clarity. Things that keep us from viewing things from God's perspective. See, we all of us, you can argue against this if you like, um, but <laughs> I think it would be a vain argument. We all of us easily slip into believing that we know better than God at times. Now, of course, we wouldn't come out and say it like that. We, we wouldn't ever say, oh, I know better than God. But our actions and our attitudes and our beliefs portray that all the time. When it comes to all areas of our life, whether it's work or money or sex or relationships, see, actually, we sometimes really don't like what the Bible has to say on those issues, and we question it, and we begin to think it through, and we often, if it particularly applies to something in our own life, think, but I don't want to stop that or give that up. Uh, and the reason that we don't is because we 
don't really believe that what God has is better. In other words, we think we know better for ourselves what's good for us than God does. And so we wind up trying to squeeze God's word and consequently kind of try and press it into a mold that suits our desires. We say stupid things like, my God would never do that. No, my Jesus wouldn't say something like that. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard someone say that. It drives me mad. What we're actually saying in that moment is, I think I know better than God. I think I see things more clearly than he does, and he needs to line up with my way of thinking. That's both the height of arrogance and the height of stupidity, isn't it? His way is infinitely better than our ways. He's not holding out on us. He created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he loves us. And his commands are for our good. Not for our restriction or for our harm, but for our blessing. Recognizing that to be true. And submitting to God, that's faith. That's seeing clearly. This centurion had plenty in his life to obscure his vision. He had plenty in his life that could have obscured his sight, that could have stopped him from seeing with faith, with clarity. His wealth was clearly a very wealthy man. Wealth can easily be an obstacle. It's easy to rest on that. The more we have, the more comfortable we are, and the more tempted we are to hope in those things and struggle to trust God. And then if you ever noticed that, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're desperate, where you've got nothing to your name, or you've no idea where the rent's going to come from this month. Actually, I find most people in those sorts of situations are quite quick to pray even if they're not sure whether they believe in God or not, are quite quick to cry out for help. But when we're comfortable, very quick to become self-reliant, to believe that we have it all together and that our money will provide for us what we need. How about his job? He was an important man. He was in charge of others. He had power, position, prestige, so much of what so many of us long for. The truth is, is when you have all those things, it's actually quite hard to view yourself and your need objectively. It's easy to get carried away. What about his background? This could have been an obstacle to him seeing clearly. See, he didn't have all the benefits of religious education and culture that the Jews around him had. He hadn't grown up with stories from their scriptures of God's deliverance of his people. He hadn't grown up waiting for the promised Messiah, Jesus, like they had. But that didn't stop him from seeing clearly now. And amazingly, he saw clearly with the eyes of faith. Guys, we have to get hold of this. Faith isn't some kind of crazy pie in the sky notion. 
It's not just a kind of vain or faint hope. Faith means seeing things as they really are. The things that promise us so much in this world never truly deliver. People let us down. Stuff rots or gets replaced by newer stuff. Our health, strength, looks, they all fade or falter sooner or later. You know, we can try as we might, we can kick it down the road for a bit longer, but sooner or later, a time comes for us all. When we invest everything that we've got into these things, when we stake our hope and happiness on those things, we ultimately get a very poor return on our investment. And when all's said and done, we end up empty and exhausted. But if we see that our true purpose is to know God, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever, then we realize that there's a, a lot of God to enjoy and forever is a really long time. <laughs> and we get to start right now. This is where we find perspective, where we begin to see clearly, knowing that we're loved by him in spite of our failings and flaws. We're going to move on, but quickly before we do, don't want to miss the fact, although it's funny, it's almost like a side note in the way Luke writes this narrative. Uh, the servant, he was healed. <laughs> Jesus didn't go anywhere near that house. He said the word. And the servant was made well. Such authority. Such power. Amazing, right? It's incredible. How good is Jesus? He carries such authority at just his word. Sickness goes. <laughs> Now, having given us this great example of a man who had the right perspective on reality, we move on to our second story, another encounter, one where no one comes to Jesus in faith. Unlike that man who came, it's different this time. And Jesus does something even more amazing that underlines who he is and helps us to see clearly. Let's read from verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, this is a fascinating scene. Jesus and his friends, and it tells us a whole crowd, have gone with him. They've just done a, about a day's walk from Capernaum to Nain. He's got a whole crowd with him. And I would guess that that walk's probably been pretty exciting. Reckon? So Jesus has got this crowd of people with him who've seen him heal the sick, who've heard him proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, who were maybe there when he spoke to the centurion's friends and that centurion's servant was made well at just a word from a distance. 
I guess the walk would have been pretty full of excitement as they traveled along the road together, full of expectation. Like, he's been doing all of this stuff. Like, now we're going to Nain. Like, what's he going to do there? This is going to be crazy. Like, you ready to see what Jesus does next? Maybe they were reflecting on, on, on some of the things they'd seen. Maybe some of them had been there for different miracles and they were sharing stories. Hey, I was there when there was that amazing catch of fish and the boats began to sink because there were so many. Were you there? Oh, yeah, yeah, I was there too. I was there in, uh, in, in Simon's house when his mother-in-law was sick and, and then Jesus healed her and she got up and started cooking for everyone. That was crazy, right? That was amazing. They're sharing these stories as they walk along the road and they arrive to the gates of the town and they meet another crowd coming the other way. But it's a whole different kind of crowd. Mourning widow with her only son who's died and a crowd of people from their town coming out. This funeral procession. You get these two contrasting crowds meet. Interesting tension, isn't there? What's Jesus going to do? What's going to happen? As these crowds come face to face, one rejoicing and one mourning. Let's read from verse 13. And when the Lord, that's Jesus, saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Jesus doesn't just kind of see this funeral procession and, and kind of carry on into town with his party sees this woman, steps away from the crowd of those following him and approaches her. He has compassion on her. This is really a very beautiful moment. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't recognize him. She doesn't ask for help. She doesn't move towards him. She doesn't have faith like the centurion did. But Jesus sees her in her need. And he steps in. Now this woman, we read, she's a widow. And she's lost her husband, yeah? And now her only son. And if you can, maybe you've experienced loss in some similar way. Imagine the pain that she's experiencing. This is utterly devastating. No parent should have to go through the experience of outliving their child. A grief which would be compounded by the fact that having already lost her husband, she now had no one to provide for her. See, culturally, this, this woman was now left with no one to protect and provide for her. How would she eat? How, how would she buy what she needed to buy? How would she go on? This lady has nothing Unlike the centurion who had the world at his feet in many ways, this woman is utterly broken with nothing. And Jesus comes to her and into the pain and the grief that she's experiencing, he simply says, do not weep. Now that might sound quite an insensitive thing to say to someone who's just lost everything. Just like, 
pro tip for you. Don't say it at a funeral, okay? If you know someone who's going through grief, like to, to go up to them and say, do not weep. It's not a good move, okay? But this was not insensitive of Jesus at all because Jesus here isn't belittling her grief or saying that she shouldn't have been weeping. That Actually, the thrust of what he's saying is, is, is like, don't weep anymore. It's like, you have been and that's okay, but that there's no need to weep anymore. And he's saying there's no need to weep anymore because of what he's about to do. We read on. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. <laughs> this is amazing, isn't it? Touching the beer would have meant Jesus was ceremonially unclean. You didn't have contact with a dead person in that way. But just like when he healed the leper earlier in Luke's gospel... Jesus really isn't concerned with those things. Jesus made the leper clean instead of himself becoming unclean, if you remember that. And here, he raises this young man back to life. Jesus' power is so absolute, his authority so comprehensive, that he simply says, young man, I say to you, arise, and this dead guy who's on his way to be buried on the outskirts of town sits up and starts talking to his mum. <laughs> this is staggering. This is awesome. And then Jesus gives him back to his mother. I, I love that picture. It's one of my favourite moments in the Gospels. Amazing picture of restoration. This is incredible, isn't it? Jesus raises this guy to life, just at a word. Now, neither the man nor his mum had any faith. And I would imagine it's fairly difficult to have when you're dead. So the man clearly didn't. And the mum clearly had no expectation that anything was going to happen other than that they were going to go bury her son. This is amazing. Moved by compassion, Jesus intervened. He stepped in and raised him from the dead. How did the people respond? We read, fear seized them. <laughs> and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen amongst us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. First thing, they had a right fear of God. We can read that, and, and we think like that sounds a bit like, Ooh. fear seized them. Now, I suppose... There's, there's probably something in seeing a dead person sit up and start talking uh, that might freak you out a bit. <laughs> but part of the thrust here too is that they have a, there's a kind of right fear of God that's appropriate. A bit like Peter, who we talked about earlier. They, they recognize that there's something going on here. And then they glorify God, saying a great prophet has arisen amongst us. That's how they view Jesus, as a prophet. And God has visited his people. Now we read that and we think, yeah, no, he has, because that's who Jesus was. Jesus was, was God incarnate, God with human flesh 
on, come to rescue us, come to seek and save the lost. They, they got it, they understand. God has visited his people. But that's not actually what they were saying. It actually wasn't an unusual phrase for them. We find it in the Old Testament too, in the context of God blessing his people in some way. Uh, effectively, they're just declaring, like God's done something good for us. A miracle's happened today here. Like God's near, like he's done something good for his people. But we know <laughs> their words were far more true than they realized. They didn't see it. They kind of missed the point. They saw Jesus as a prophet, as a, as a godly man, and they're in awe of the miracle, but they absolutely miss the Savior. They miss the fact that this Jesus is the Son of God, the one who came to defeat sin and death for us once and for all. This Jesus, he has ultimate authority whose words still the storm and cleanse the sick and raise the dead. He's the Lord, the Lord of all. And those who trust in him will truly live. Guys, this is our hope, isn't it? And it's not a vain, faint hope. It's not a flight of fancy. This is faith to see Jesus in that light, to trust him in that way, is to truly see with clarity. This is faith. When we see him for who he is and we recognize ourselves in need, when we put our trust in him to save us, this is the great truth. He raises us from spiritual death. But when he returns... He will raise us up to eternal life too. Just like he got this young man up from his funeral procession. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, these words. It says, For the Lord, that's Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's basically saying that those who've trusted in Jesus and have died on earth, that's, that's who the dead in Christ are. So it's, right, if you die before Jesus comes back in glory, that's you. Okay, you will then be amongst the dead in Christ. That's how it's phrased here in 1 Thessalonians. And what does it say? That he'll return. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And the dead in Christ will rise. The Lord himself will return in glory. And the voice that raised this young man back to life in the midst of his funeral procession will call us out of the grave to live with him forever. It's amazing, isn't it? If you're a Christian, that's your hope. <laughs> Knowing that, allowing that to, to permeate into your heart, that's faith. That's seeing clearly what a glorious hope. So how do we respond? How do we respond to that kind of message? Because if we're honest, 
but we can sit here now and we can kind of, you know, I can talk about our future hope when the dead in Christ shall rise to be with him forever. And we can talk about Jesus meeting this widow on the road and resurrecting her son and the centurion who saw clearly and who had faith, who knew that Jesus could do it and trusted that he would. And his servant is healed. And we can smile at each other and go, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. But the truth is, if we're honest, we can struggle, can't we? We can struggle to see things with the eyes of faith. We can struggle to see things as they really are. We can struggle to trust God with our money. We can struggle to trust God with our jobs, with our relationships. We can struggle to trust God with our present and our future. We wrestle with doubts. I do, to be honest. My guess is that if you're honest, you do too. I want to encourage you today. Come with your doubts. We're going to sing one final song in just a moment. Phil, if you want to come up. I want to encourage you. Come with your doubts to a compassionate saviour who isn't limited by our lack of faith. Remember, the woman and her son had no faith that didn't stop Jesus, did it? Our security in him doesn't rest in the strength of our faith or our ability to hold on to him. But it rests on his ability to hold on to us. And that's a very, very good thing. And yet we don't want to allow that to lead us to apathy. Because in response to his grace, we want to please him and honour him, don't we? I do. I think of God's grace for me and I think, Lord, I just I want to honour you. I, I want to have that kind of faith that pleases you. We read in scriptures, without faith it's impossible to please God. And I think, oh Lord, I, I want to please you. I want to see clearly. So what do we do? Well, this is where scripture is so helpful. In Luke 17, which we're going to get to later this year, the disciples recognise that they need, just like we do, that they struggle with doubts, that they don't have the faith that they wish they had. And they actually say to Jesus, Lord, give us more faith. I want us to ask that too. Elsewhere in the Gospels in Mark 9, we find a man with a sick son who comes to Jesus to ask for healing. And as he does, he says, I I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. He's honest about his struggle. Guys, let's be people who share that same heart. Yeah? We're going to pray and then hand back over to Phil. Oh, Lord. Lord, we believe. But please, help our unbelief. Lord, we trust you. We know that you are good, that you're glorious, that you're gracious, that you're compassionate that your Lord, we know that you can save and that you can heal. We know. We know that your ways are better than our ways, but Lord, sometimes we struggle to see that. Sometimes we struggle to believe that. Sometimes we struggle to 
allow that to impact the way we live. I pray, Jesus, would you help our unbelief? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see clearly? Would you give us faith that we might see things as they really are? Would you give us true sight? Lord, as we go into this week, would you help us to go with eyes of faith? Would you help us to go seeing you for who you are? Lord, would you give us faith? Help our unbelief for your glory, Lord. Amen.